Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, new college students usually get lots of advice. Go to office hours, ask good questions, declare a major as soon as you can, take some time to figure out who you are, get some research experience, get good internships with real life experience, sit in the front row, avoid procrastination. Some of this advice is obvious, some of it is contradictory, and some of it is bad. And almost all of it fails to explain why or even how. So the new college student, overwhelmed as they are, is apt to ignore all of it. In their new book, The Secret Syllabus, A Guide to the University Unwritten Rules of College Success, Jay Phelan and Terry Burnham begin at the most foundational level and work upwards. The result is probably the best book that you could give to a first-year college student or a second-year college student or a senior who's finally getting it together. Jay Phelan, Terry Burnham, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot. Thanks for that great intro. So uh, before we begin with this, I should say to people who are new to the podcast that occasionally on the podcast, I like to have uh, interviews, discussions about his, uh, higher education. And I think of them as being an extended series called Higher Education, A Guide for the Perplexed, since um, a lot of the stuff that you talk about in the book is stuff that people who've been to college, maybe even gotten a master's degree, still don't know, which is interesting. Uh, I was saying to a friend who also wrote uh, uh, just last week, I was at the beach with some friends, and one of them, Professor at Duke, has written a, a advice on uh, a team of authors who wrote a book, much like this one, but I said, secret syllabus is better than yours. <laughs> and let me tell you why. <laughs> and I said, the problem with you, pal, is that you're a professor's son and you were always a good student. And so all this stuff came naturally to you and you still can't explain why. And he thought about it. He had to admit that there was a certain amount of truth to what I was say, saying, even though it was all really a damn lie. But, um, but I think this is what's great about this book is, is that uh, you guys are, are, are talk about how you were bad students. So, there's a certain way in which you come at this as outsiders and having to explain things uh, as outsiders to other outsiders. What do you think about that? Well, I'll think- start in. Okay. <laughs> okay, Jay. Go ahead, Jay. All right. So this is Jay. And I think you, you make a great point. And I've thought about that a lot. As a professor, I see other professors and they were the student who was always at the top of the curve. They were self-motivated. They knew what they they had to do. They wanted to do it. They were going the extra mile. And that wasn't me. <laughs> Neither of my parents had, had gone to college and they were hard workers, but they didn't know what to tell me. And so I, they knew that I had to go to college. College is a spectacularly uh, valuable opportunity. But beyond that, they didn't know what I should be doing there, how I should do college. And so I got here and you realize, or in my case, it took maybe three or four years to realize 
that it's a foreign culture, that there were these norms of what you were supposed to do, how you were supposed to develop and nurture relationships, how you were supposed to figure out what you were supposed to do. And I didn't know any of those. I sat there and it was like someone else, you know, all the other people had been to some secret meeting that I hadn't been to. And so they knew the thing to do. So I would sort of look over their shoulder to see, oh, how do I take notes? Or I'd be in the library and I'd see, how am I supposed to study? I don't even know what that means. Mm -hmm. And I was at this huge disadvantage, I thought. And there were a lot of people like this because there were all of these things I didn't know how to do. And there were even a lot of unknown unknowns. I didn't even know that I didn't know how to do a bunch of stuff. Right. And for that reason, I really floundered around. And I look back and, and I can see that I just wasted so many really valuable opportunities. Towards the end, I started to think, ah, I wish I had known this earlier. And that was part of the, the journey, but I would have been significantly better off. I, I spent a lot of unproductive time drifting. Terry? Mm -hmm. Well, the other aspect that you uncovered is that the secret of the secret syllabus is it's not just about doing well in college. So as you said, many people who are uh, you know, much older than college age still don't interact. So, um, I'll give you an example of this. So I'm on a college tour right now with my 11th grader and she's going to softball camps. And so after each camp, she writes a note to the coaches. She knows to do that. But what she doesn't know, or most people her age don't know is that the note should not be about her. It should be about the camp and the coaches. And you always go to the more uh, formal. You never say dear coach Liz. You always say dear coach Smith or whoever it may be, right? And so that little bit of advice uh, makes a huge difference, I think. And uh, it's remarkable when we get emails from students that they don't understand this. They say the dumbest things. And I mean dumb in the sense of not being successful and attaining their goals. Yeah, I, so, I, lo I love the notes that were always addressed to Zambone. <laughs> or, or, or when people call me Zambone in class. I say, oh, you forgot my first name. It's Professor. Yeah, but, <laughs> I always think of Dr. Evil. I didn't go to yeah. evil medical school to be called Mr. Thank you. <laughs> and, and so, but your point is that there's two different points there, right? Which is number yeah. one, it, the book, The Secret Syllabus is way more important for people who don't have someone sitting in the car like me next to them. Right. Uh, and secondly, these techniques are important for your entire life. You treat people in a certain way and communicate in a certain way. And the rules for being effective, the cultural norms are the same for college and for afterlife but they're also very different from what they were in high school yeah. so you get by with a lot of very poor behaviors in high school because the teachers you know that's just a different world that we live in so you've got us you've got us uh, figure <laughs> this all out <laughs> so let's talk about um about college culture um i'd recommend uh, if listeners uh, will link in the show notes to uh talk I had with Dan Chambliss, sociologist, about uh, basically the the secret culture of college, how college works. And he talks about many important things that I think professors don't think about. Like, for example, if you want to meet other students, and you should, you want to live on a long hallway rather than in pods of apartments where you'll never, you'll see far fewer people. Um, the way that you meet people, see lots of people. So you want to maximize that, your ability to do that. That isn't necessarily what we're talking about here, but we are talking about the, what I love about it is that people always think of culture as a positive thing, but culture is all, uh, I, culture is 
mostly guardrails and admonitions and ways that we direct people within a culture towards a point that a culture has somehow mystically, magically determined um, they want people to go. And that's colleges full of those guardrails, invisible guardrails, secret syllabi. So could you describe sort of, uh, Terry, a little bit of how you think about college culture in that way, especially as you were starting to put together this book? Sure. And I'll talk about one of my terrible violations of college culture. So when I was in grad school, I was probably in my 30s, so I should have known better. I took a class with Marty Feldstein, and Marty Feldstein had been the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under Ronald Reagan. And not only did I realize later that he could have changed my life, he did change the life for some of my classmates. So the ones he liked got jobs at the Council of Economic Advisors and got jobs in Washington and are famous people who you now will see on TV all the time. So dumb Terry is sitting in Marty's class. I'm not taking it for credit. I'm just sitting there learning because I liked him. And I thought all that mattered was a grade. And since he wasn't giving me a grade, it didn't matter what he thought Mm. of me. And so one day I was sitting there reading the newspaper (laughs) and very loudly turning the pages of the Harvard Crimson. I mean, not even the Boston Globe. (laughs) (laughs) You you didn't have that base. Yes. Uh, and he got super <laughs> mad at me and he yelled at me he completely lost his temper and he said terry if you're going to continue reading the paper i would like you to leave the classroom and uh it's so obvious now but at the time it wasn't like i'm here i'm not getting a grade you know why would you be mad if i'm reading the newspaper and it just is so cringeworthy to think about that and I, I mean, I guess I should have posed it pedag- pedagogically here as a question. Would that be offensive? And the answer is, yeah, we're people. So yeah. one of our main points in the secret syllabus is you can memorize a list of uh, facts or hacks. Always call the professor professor. Always email them about some missed assignment. Don't talk to them in class, et cetera. But you can generate all of those ideas and those uh, rules of thumb if you think of the person as an individual with their own goals and aspirations and so forth so marty felsing didn't get up in the morning and drive from his nice house in the suburbs of boston to come in and have some punk read the paper in his class right he wants to think of himself and he was he was great um uh so uh so those rules are out there. You can generate a lot of them as we teach you in the secret syllabus by thinking about the professor as a person. Uh, but violation, I violated those rules and I was punished for it. The guy sitting next to me who was dumber than me became a famous person in Washington because he followed the rules. Huh. Jay? <laughs> Even I cringe at that because I know <laughs> I've done the same thing on many different occasions. <clears throat> An ex- experience that I've had is at UCLA, I've started teaching a class and a lot of schools have these. They're sort of thought of as student success classes. And the intention of universities is very good. Let's help people ease into this new culture so that they can get more out of it. But even in the context of a class like that, a student success class, what we see is that there is this attitude and it's not always stated explicitly that this is remedial. This is maybe for the people who need it. It's not for the smart kids, uh, except that what is it about the smart kids? Okay, they got better grades in high school. That then causes a reinforcement of this notion that it's about what's the grade that you're going to get? How much information can you can you memorize? 
But the real message that we're teaching, and we're teaching it in these student success classes, is that you have to figure out how to navigate the culture. You have to form and nurture strong relationships with the people who are going to be your mentor and advise you. You have to learn how to learn which no one has ever taught you how to do. You have to figure out how to work productively. How do you set your goals? How do you then work towards them? Those are separate things. All those things are different from, oh, how good are the grades that I've gotten so far? But they're an essential part of coming out of college set up for the rest of your lives. So this idea that, oh, all right, well, some of the remedial students need need this because they don't get the same good grades as someone else. That's like that's maybe, you know, 20% of what college is. But the other 80%, guess what? Even the people with the best grades are not prepared because they've never been taught what they're supposed to be good at, what they're supposed to be working on. And, and you know, this can come back to haunt you later on in your college career when you're getting done and you start to realize, ah, I need these relationships and you can't do it quickly. You can't do it overnight. Um, let me ask you, uh, I, I, this, I, this occurred to me as I was reading the intro, what's some of the really bad advice that people give to entering uh, first year students and, and maybe bad advice that some people think is really clever because there's a lot of that. Although I now that I now that I'm trying to think of, it, I can't immediately think of it. Well, I think the two but, obvious ones, and maybe Jay and I can each talk about one of them. The two obvious ones are you got to go to office hours. Mm -hmm. In office hours, you should ask people for um, for uh, content delivery, how to work in these problems. Mm -hmm. And the second is that the earlier you have a career choice or a major, the better. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe I can speak to the office hour one. Uh, yeah, Jay can talk to the career one. So. I have a student, uh, a former student of mine, who is likely to become a U.S. senator in uh, November. I'm not going to say his name when I tell this story. So I'm sitting in my office, and I get a phone call from the statistics. I was teaching intro econ at the Kennedy School, and I get a call from the professor who's teaching intro statistics. And he says, I've got these two students who deserve to fail, but I heard you know them. So I wanted to ask your advice. And I said, yeah, don't fail them. They're good guys. So why did I say that? Well, the answer is the guys had come to my office hours probably 10 times. Uh, and at one point, they bought me a life-size cutout of Austin Powers in a curly cravat to stay there. So when they came to office hours, they never came to office hours to talk about the problem set. They never came to office hours. They came and asked me questions about the world and about life. And they were both excellent guys. One guy had been in the military, and the other guy was very interested in becoming a politician, which he is now. Um, and they just came and chatted about life. And so it is true. They didn't do great in the stats class, but they were very, very conscientious individuals. And so because I had a little bit of a relationship with them, I was able to say things that then convinced the stats professor to you know, see them in the best light. Uh, and the point there is that when you go to office hours, people think, oh, I'm going to go and I don't know what to say, right? What am I going to say? This guy's older, this woman's older than I am. What am I going to say? I'm going to just go in and ask them, do problem three, do problem seven, do problem 21. <clears throat> and that is um, not bad, it's fine. But if you can ask the different sorts of questions and develop a relationship, it's going to lead to much better outcomes. In this case, something very mundane, passing the class, but letters of recommendation, getting better jobs, et cetera, um, so going to office hours is great, 
what should you say? We give specific advice, but the general notion is don't talk about you, talk about them, talk about the world that the, the instructor professor knows that you don't know. Yeah, I think uh, Catherine Heiskus, who was formerly an intern slash assistant producer for this podcast when she was a brand spanking new uh, first year student at UVA, she had a class with Philip Zellico, uh, who is the primary author of the 9-11 Commission Report, who's also been on a guest on this podcast. Uh, and she just thought he was interesting. So she went to talk to him in office hours. Um, I think that's a really good reason to talk to someone in office hours. Um, you think they're interesting. And, you know, as you also say, you should be taking classes with good professors. And a lot of good professors are actually interesting, um, amazingly enough. So why not go talk to them? That's what they're there for. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't blame the students, right? You get two things out of, out of class, right? You do get the grade, and then you get everything else. And the grade is super important. And our culture puts way too much emphasis on this, right? You get the wrong set of grades in high school. You can't go to the right college. You get the wrong set of grades in college. So I'm 100% in, in, on the side of the student who wants to get good grades, 100%. Mm -hmm. But the, 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 the whipped cream on top or the extra that you can get from the relationship comes from a different set of interactions with the professor, not talking about how to get good grades. Yeah, I mean, at, at least, and at least uh, in my experience, uh, I'm a historian, students didn't come to me to talk about problem sets. Uh, they, they often came to me to game me and to sort and to sort of you know reverse psychologize me uh, for an extra you know to get from the eighty nine to a ninety one, to get from the seventy eight to an eighty two, or something like that. Um, that was sort of how, what they thought talking about grades was supposed to be. Um, you know, they didn't come to me. They did come to me because I made them come to me. That's a separate story to get writing advice, but it usually when students are coming to talk about grades are often they often do it too late and they do it in in ways that would be obvious to um anyone and certainly to their professor right and uh, just to finish that point so our theme is think about the world from the perspective of the instructor so you can generate your own answer there are you going to be successful at duping into someone into giving you four extra points right a, do they want to have the conversation? Absolutely not. Nobody went to graduate school and took low pay as an instructor to come in there and argue with you about three points. Number two, they've played the game thousands of times. So are you going to defeat them? Are you going to beat uh, you know, Djokovic at tennis? No. So the second you go in there with your tactic to change your grade through duplicitous means, the instructor knows immediately what you're there for, and it doesn't help you at all. So think about the world from the perspective of the, of the instructor and have a little respect for that person and you'll have a better outcome. One thing I like to think about also is that no one points out to you that office, office hours is the one place where you as the student control the agenda. Wow. They've already set the lecture schedule. They've set the problem sets, the material that's cover, covered. Here you go in and it's the one time where it's actually legit. You can say, hey, if you were a student in this class, how would you spend your time? Hey, what if you could change what students do in your class, what would you do? Or even better still, this professor has figured out how to get a career. They went from having a major to figuring out how to get into graduate school, which is not obvious. And then from that, they decided, all right, I think I want this job. So how did they 
come into that career path, you can ask them that. And in the process, you learn a lot. But importantly, you learn stuff that isn't in the textbook. It's not in the lecture notes. You can't get it on Khan Academy uh, or from a teaching assistant. And you can get everything about the content in all those other places. So you're you're sort of losing this opportunity for for real insights that you could get from the instructor. That's uh, that's th- that could take us down a very uh, long alley and actually a whole different conversation about content versus insight. But let's not do that right now. Uh, and instead, uh, Ter- uh, Jay, Terry had set you up to talk yes. about the career, bad advice about planning for a career. Yes, we have this this pervasive myth that is that the sooner you can come to what your career path is going to be, the better. I get students in my office all the time and they they want a recommendation letter or something like that. And they'll say to me, I've wanted to be a doctor since I was 10 years old. And that is meant to show me their commitment to this career. But all I can picture is this little 10-year-old who knows that they have about five options. They could be a pop star or an astronaut or a race car driver or you know, a doctor. And when you voice, oh, I want to be a race car driver or professional athlete to your parent, they just laugh it off. You're a 10-year-old. But when someone says, oh, I want to be a doctor, all of a sudden your parents love you a whole lot more. Your grandmother loves you more. (laughs) This happened to me. And (laughs) so it gets reinforced. And if you have any discipline, you're like, oh, I like that. Wow. The more I say that, the more they seem to like me and it's good. And my teachers in school also seem to think that that's good. So I'm going to stick with it. So now you get there and you've gotten so good at articulating all these reasons why that would be good. And they can be legitimate reasons why someone might like that. But what's important to remember is that you just made this extremely important life decision with the brain of a 10-year-old. And I'm not sure I want a 10-year-old making my decisions. But everyone, if you compare the person who says, this is what I want to do, this is always what I've wanted to do, with the person who gets to college and you're like, oh, what do you want to do? And they say, "Uh, I don't know. What's your major? I'm not sure. It's like, hey, don't worry, you'll get something. The point being that the unstated message is it's okay, but it's not as good as if you knew that you wanted to be a lawyer since you were in fifth grade, something like that. So we try to make the point in the book that that when you get to college, this is your chance to explore options that are open to you. This is your chance to learn about career paths that you've never even been exposed to or investigate fields of inquiry that might be uh, of interest to you. I think about the fact that when I got to college, I didn't know what anthropology was. I didn't know what linguistics was. I didn't know what applied math meant. But if I come in and I'm like, oh, I've known that I want to be a biologist since I was 10 years old, bam, I've just ruled out a whole bunch of disciplines that lots of people like. And and so I have, have given up one of the biggest values of college that I get to become a broadly educated person. I get to take survey classes, even this idea of, well, just take some of your, your general education requirements to get them out of the way. What do you mean get them out of the way? You're at college. This is your one chance to get a survey course and discover, wow, art history is actually spectacular. I love this. So so trying to 
remind students that saying that they don't know and that they are actively exploring is as good or usually better than coming in with a very narrow view. This is what I'm going to do because somehow it's like a race to the finish line. I'll, sometimes I'll even jokingly tell my students, I'm like, I go to the doctor sometime and guess what? I don't want my doctor to be 30. I would like my doctor to be 50. I, I want her to have some experience in the world uh, and have, have explored some other things, okay? Okay, uh, but let me push back a little bit on that. It's only four years. Uh, it turns out by the time you're a senior, you realize it was a lot shorter, four years a lot shorter than you thought. And all of a sudden you're a senior and you have no idea what you're supposed to be doing. So this gets to, to for me to what's the hardest part of the, of the, of your book for me. I was not a planner. I was very much against planning. It ruined romantic spontaneity. Um, it, you know, it ruined adventure and things. I just could not make a plan about a day, a week, a year. You knew of such kids, uh, you knew they were going to be successful, that be built, but several chapters of your book is about planning your for a career planning for planning your schedule for the the day the week the the month the semester planning the year um so i guess i'm 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 wishing that you could talk to me at 17 and explain why and how making a plan is good and possible and yet at the same time i should be experimenting and taking general ed courses because i don't see how i don't think 17 year old me sees how those things go together I think it's one or the other. Well, let me tell you a story. So when I was in college at the University of Michigan, there was a 260-pound ferocious defensive end uh, and who went on to play in the NFL. And uh, they had his transcript in Sports Illustrated. And he got an A-plus in a physics class that I had gotten an A-minus in. <laughs> to show that he was super smart as opposed to, in addition to being super great athletically, he had taken every year, he had taken three classes in the fall, four classes in the spring and three classes in the summer. <laughs> so why did he do that? Well, you're playing football in the fall for a, a big name school. You're super busy. So he took only three classes. Spring football is pretty intense too. So instead of taking five, he took four. And that story said to me, wow, this, and he went on to be uh, very successful outside of football. Uh, and then in, in, similarly, we tell the story of Alan Page, who was a Minnesota sort of Vikings uh, MVP, et cetera, who went on to be on the Minnesota Supreme Court through doing similar things, looking ahead. And so there's sort of two points there, which is number one, a little bit of planning, just the slightest amount has enormous payoffs. And number two, I think at one point you asked, well, how do you get this advice into students' uh, heads? And the answer is for us that it's almost always story-based. <laughs> and so the Alan Page story where he became, uh, you got the Medal of Freedom from uh, the, the president, became the uh, on the Minnesota Supreme Court, in addition to being a great football player and then the other football player, their planning ahead is causing them to have great outcomes. And so... Um, uh, I think the way to get this information in the 17-year-old's head is not to preach at them, but rather to wrap the advice in stories. And there are a million of them. Here's another one I like. Djokovic playing tennis at the U.S. Open. It's 100 degrees. And uh, this is not this year, but previously. Um, and uh, he's drinking the drink, the nutrition, to make him be the most effective right now to win the match. The second he, they know he's going to win the match, so there's a point in time where it's, you know, two sets and five games up, whatever. 
they switch him to the recovery drink. So his trainer comes out and says, no, we're not going to go from this, whatever it is, Jay will know, electrolytes, blah, 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 versus protein and fat, right? And, yeah. and they switch him, right? And so um, uh, the benefits are any, as most 17-year-olds do. <laughs> the first hour of planning is going to be a lot more than the, the third hour on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Something else I, I would say to Al is this, that a lot of times students have this belief or even a fear because they see their fellow students getting ahead. Oh no, they've already been doing these research jobs and I I needed to have already picked a major so that I could have the research job or something like that because they imagine somehow that their their future job is going to hinge on the specific work that they've done working towards this. But that turns out not actually to be how life works. I'm thinking when I went to graduate school, I was it was a PhD program in biology, and I start talking to my office mate, and she she says to me, oh, "I'm so worried being here," and and she's in a PhD program in biology at Harvard, and I said, "Why?" and she said. I've taken almost no biology classes in my <laughs> life. I, t- I took two classes. My major was American studies. Wow. And I said, wow, you're kidding. She said, yeah, she said, but I always sort of liked biology. And then I finished school and I thought I'm going to become like a tour guide at the Grand Canyon where I can be in nature. She did that. And that caused her to realize, no, I think I want to be a little bit more serious about this. And then she went into it. And it wasn't that the graduate admissions committee then is like, ha, you don't know anything about photosynthesis. They thought, <laughs> They thought she can learn that. What we've seen is a development of an interest and someone who is good at other stuff. Mm -hmm. And I I remember that when I was finishing uh, in school that I got recruited for a management consulting job. There's a company, McKinsey. And I thought, what a bizarre thing. I've never taken a management class in my life. I've never had any experience at all. This seems ridiculous. But I thought, I'll go. It seems like kind of a fun thing. Thing. Everyone talks about this company, McKinsey. So I, I go and I tell them, I say, I don't know anything about business. And they said, ah, that doesn't matter. It looks like from your record, you're really good at solving problems. And that's what we do. You know, if, so if we can apply what you've learned about problem solving to uh, some other thing, that's easy to learn the specifics of the business, but you have this skill. So I think a lot of people imagine that they, they need to have studied exactly the thing that they're going to do rather than demonstrating that they know how to learn. They know how to figure out what they like. They know how to set their goals and then come up with an actionable strategy by which they they move forward. And I'll, I'll give one little story about this. One of my brothers was an English major in college. And people would laugh like, oh, what are you going to do with an English major? And he just liked it. He's like, I like learning about it. I can take lessons about life. I learn about people, even if it's fictional characters. And eventually he decided, I think maybe I want to join the FBI. And he calls the federal building, gets an application. We have no connection whatsoever. And he applies and half, you know, all the other people who are applying, they have been in the military or they've had all sorts of training for this. And as he went through, he kept telling them, I'm not sure I have any of the background for this. And they're like, no, but you have some real 
deep insights into how people work, into how situations work, into into how subtlety can play a role in in developing relationships. And he ended up getting hired and has had a rich and successful career doing exactly that. But you might have thought if you were looking from the outside, oh, that's too bad he picked the wrong major. But he didn't pick the wrong major. He picked a way of learning something, getting good at it, and being able to demonstrate to other people that he had that such that if later he decides, I want to transfer this to some completely different domain, it's okay. And people get it. It doesn't seem that wacky. So uh, my old mentor, uh, Lendl Calder, uh, used to say that the goal of uh, history department, this is what we say to students, is to make the inside of your head an interesting place for yourself and <laughs> others. Uh, what I see you saying basically several different ways when you're talking about planning career and life and uh, four years is basically the goal of this four years is to make yourself as interesting a person as you want to be. Is that is that? Work. That's a fantastic summary of it. Yes. <laughs> work on becoming interesting first. And then as you get older, you can figure out what your interests are then and how to apply all that stuff in your head, how to take your prior knowledge and show how it has some insights for, for some novel situations that you're going to come into. And in fact, a lot of departments that I've been in through school and in jobs when it comes time to hiring people, they love hiring people from outside. Oh, he doesn't have a biology degree. He has a math degree, but he'll learn the biology or, oh, he's a statistical expert. Mm -hmm. But that tool can be brought to bear on a lot of interesting stuff that, that we have. So switching over is not a real problem. But once you have this, this inside of your head that's not only interesting, but has some skills, that's going to make you valuable in a lot of, of other ways. I feel like I've learned as much about being good as a teacher and as a biologist from a close friend of mine who is a professor of Arabic. But so much of what we do is still trying to convey ways of thinking about the world to other people that his his perspective is hugely valuable. So, yeah. So make the inside of your head interesting. I like that. I had a student who within one year of graduating from Chapman, he got to play a central role in the NASDAQ's $4 billion purchase of a competing exchange, trade stock exchange. And uh, the way he got the job is the recruiter for the NASDAQ, uh, you know, that's the exchange, but also they run a lot of software for other uh, trading uh, systems around the world. The head of HR for the firm knew me, called me up. He said, I have this job that requires 10 years experience. And I said, I don't have anyone like that, but I've got this guy who's going to graduate like in a, in a week. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, uh, okay. Um, so the student, uh, Sean, CEO, he's directly with the CEO and, and gets the job and he's very successful at the job and he does all what are you talking about in the interview? You, you never even left college. And he said, well, I played golf at Chapman and I love to fly private planes. And so did the CEO. And that's all we talked about. But we didn't just talk about it like, you know, as Jay was saying, it wasn't just like, oh, we have this common interest. The CEO was very interested. Okay, you're standing over a putt that is uh, subtle and complicated and important. What's going on in your head? Or you're in the plane and something goes wrong. What do you think about? So it turned out to be that his passions, because he was a smart and thoughtful person and had thought about them a lot, 
that was the way he got this amazing job. And, uh, and sort of the way to think about it is, as you say, not only to be interesting inside your head and be an interesting person, but to have a little faith that there are other people in the world who are looking for something more than a drone who's done an extra weekend on how to use Excel better or something, right? Mm -hmm. The world mm -hmm. is filled with interesting people who want interesting people around them, not, not uh, attack of the clones. Yeah. See, I mean, so for example, people might be surprised you suggest doing two or three extracurricular activities. Um, depends on the extracurricular activity depends what you put into it but you can learn a lot you can be a different person because of an extracurricular activity um one of uh, shambles's examples is is writing programs um that turns out to be fantastic because uh, writing programs might help other people but um they also they also give you some very close friendships because you're working with people in a writing center uh for four years um, and we could see the ways in which a writing program would also direct a person vocationally in some direction. Uh, one college I was part of had a, had something they had basically they trained therapy dogs. That's a very interesting uh, extracurricular program for what it does to the people who train the dogs. I mean, it's good for the dogs and the people that benefit from them. But those those are ways of becoming different people. I think that I think those yeah those are both really good examples yeah whether whether it's training the dog or working in the writing center a place where you can even make that transition from oh writing is because I have some assignment to do for a paper to writing is fun hey there's some artistry here well, hey this is a far. way I <laughs> but writing is a craft and can be mastered. Let's <laughs> but but then you can have a little bit of fun with it. That yeah. was that was very bizarre for me to see when I was in college that I had some friends who were all English majors and they had this weird idea that they they were talking about their papers with each other for classes that they did they didn't even have the same class, but they were talking about interesting ways that they might approach it. And I mm -hmm. thought that that whole attitude was good, even though they weren't necessarily going to be writers. I, I thought of one other example of that, that I had a student who, she was fantastic at performing on the exams, but she would come to my office hours and she would tell me, she she's like, I'm obsessed with the photos that you have in your book. I have a textbook and many of the photos are very non-standard. They're not stock photos. I might try to use metaphors for teaching. So instead of showing a picture of a chromosome, I'm going to show a picture of a kid eating a plate of, of spaghetti because there are some, some analogies there between the structure of the spaghetti and the structure of chromosomes. So she liked this, but she came to office hours. She's like, all right, well, what else would you do for this? Or what would you do for this? Or why did you pick this photo? I had probably 10 interactions with her and it was always about that and it was mostly just fun she's like oh I thought that was really fun and she's like I'm trying to learn how to be better at taking photos so you know what do you think are the elements that make it good or this or that and she ended up going on to medical school she she applied to you know six or seven medical schools got into all of them and she she and I had never talked about anything relating to her biology re directly, but I wrote a recommendation letter and it was one of the strongest letters I've ever written because like Terry recommending his student, I had no, no question whatsoever in my head that she was going to be perfect at this. She had de demonstrated over and over 
an ability to look at things from multiple perspectives and and try to get insights from that but also she tried to have fun as she did it. I I love that. That's my memory of her. She also would tell me, she's like, oh, ever since I was a little kid, my dad said that I could order whatever I wanted at a restaurant, but I had to eat it all. <laughs> and, and then he'd let me take apart anything at home as long as I would try to put it back together later. So she had all these just wacky stories about taking the toaster apart, taking something else apart. And and a lot of students in office hours would just give these big, heavy sighs like, oh, come on, please finish with this story. And I'm thinking, no, I'm learning so much about you and you in articulating this and somehow tying it to what we're talking about are also your your brain's becoming very interesting and I'm becoming very interested in it. Mm -hmm. So so that to me is like the model of how you go through the the educational process. Let's. Um move forward a little bit, you you emphasize that in choosing courses, you should choose great teachers. Um, easier said than done, perhaps. How do you go about doing that? So uh, I give the non-subtle version of this. I'm literally about to go out for lunch in New York City with my 16-year-old daughter, and we're going to sit here and look at Yelp reviews of restaurants and let her pick the restaurant. And uh, what's the message there? When you talk to college students, the biggest mistake that they make in this area is they want a convenient schedule. They don't want to have any classes on Friday. They don't want to get up at eight o'clock in the morning or whatever. And then you ask them the question, okay, so when you went to a restaurant last night, how many minutes did you spend picking the restaurant? Oh, 35. We had a spirited debate. Okay, how many minutes did you take decide, uh, spend deciding which class to take? Uh, three minutes or no minutes, right? And, uh, and then you... Uh, end up with these uh, experiences, which can be terrible. There's so much variation between the best teacher and the worst teacher. And it's it's so easy to get some information on that. So uh, our advice for that is um, uh, spend some time looking at the uh, at the uh, information that you have available to you and put if you can put more weight on um, uh, the characteristics of great teachers as opposed to convenient times. And again, mm -hmm. we have some really funny, I love, we love the reviews of, of people, including I've had mean ones written about me. So somebody wrote about me. No, no one or no one goes to Burnham's class. We don't learn anything here, <laughs> but there's some super mean ones in there. Right. And everyone knows who the better or worse teachers are if you spend five minutes. So yeah. uh, it, the simplistic it, advice is, spend a little time and be a little bit more serious in the sense of being willing to take a class that's not the most convenient to get that great, that great teacher. When um, I was teaching the uh, class that you, that sort of Jay was referring to the sort of uh, teach you how to study class, uh, we call it writing, but um, I would give, uh, rate my professor's reviews uh, as a way of learning how to read between the lines. <laughs> Um, to read for what is said is uh, what is not said and what is said by not being said. Um, Cause that's a very useful skill to develop in reading rate my professors. Right. So one of the <laughs> reviews that we quote is uh, when you go to class, bring a pillow cause you'll fall asleep and then bring a pillow for your pillow. Cause your pillow will fall asleep too. <laughs> so if you take that class, cause it fits into your schedule in a convenient time, you're not even allowed to complain to your friends because you walked into that with your eyes wide open. Right. And so you're going to suffer hundreds of hours or 100 hours of boring, unpleasant, unproductive time 
just so you can go skiing on Fridays. If you've got a class, though, with, say, 14 reviews, four of them say that Zambone is a really hard grader. I'm just saying this. This is, yeah, actually, some people said about that about me. Uh, but 10 say they, uh, they didn't say this, but he's very caring. That's a very interesting ratio. Um, you know, that's, uh, that tells you something interesting about the, about the professor. You need to pay attention to that. Right. So there's information there. It's not the right class. Um, I, we have the story there of a student touring a high school. And the person giving the tour says, don't take, you know, this person for the religion class. He's a jerk. And then it turns out that later on, that student loves that teacher. And the teacher just didn't like people who were not hardworking. And so, as you say, reading between the lines, the person who's a great teacher for one student may be a terrible teacher for a different student. And you have to be a savvy consumer of that. But to be a savvy consumer, you have to be a consumer meaning you have to at least look at the reviews before you choose based on time, time slot and getting your, you know, things done. We have another example of a student who says, I waited one semester to take this professor over this professor. And that professor that I waited for made a huge impact on my life. Any other tips, Jay, on how to find the, the great teacher? Well, I think that, yeah, you've, you've hit on a couple of good points, this idea that it's not just that there's one dimension. Oh, find the guy who's the easy guy, because it depends on what you're looking for. If this is a class in your major, you may want someone who really focuses on how you do the discipline. If you're, it's something outside of your major, you may want someone who gives you the has the broadest worldview and surveys everything. There's a lot of different stuff to go on there. So, so you have to think about your needs and what the information says. But the is that, yeah, because in this day and age, there's so much information now available. If you look uh, at, let's say, rateyourprofessor.com, because we have so much data, you can find great reviews and poor reviews for anyone. You have to start looking at a whole bunch of them so that you can throw out the best ones and the worst ones, but you start to get a sense of, of what the actual truth is, and they are pretty accurate. Something else I'll say is, Remember that this is a cynical thing to say, but that not all of the counselors that you're going to talk to when you get to college are going to have your exact interests in mind relative to their own, because it's very important. Schools want students to graduate. They want them to finish. So you can get nudged sometimes towards, well, if you do this, you'll you'll finish faster. And if you personally know that all of your friends have said, Professor X changed my life because that person was inspiring, motivating, made me work harder, whatever, all those different things. If you have to wait and if you have to jiggle your schedule around or alter your work schedule in order to take them, that's a really important thing. But that might not always come across when the person, the advisor is trying to make a nice, neat grid so that your four-year plan all works out. So walk around all the time saying, who was your best teacher? Why? Ask everyone that question. Yeah. I would uh, also look at um, YouTube, YouTube lectures. There's plenty of them now. Mm -hmm. I would I would look at places like the great courses um, mm -hmm. that, that I've often found beneficial for myself. It's sometimes it can be not always, but a lot of the time it's like getting batting tips from Ted Williams um, to watch because, and they pick people from all around the country and all sorts of different schools. You'll be surprised at where some of these really good lecturers come from. 
is the gateway drug to a department. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, given the pathologies of higher education, uh, the better teachers, uh, as they become more honored, are able to teach less. It ain't right, but that's the way it is. Uh, so it's sometimes hard to find that gateway drug um, into a department. But if you search and search, uh, if, if you do, a, I would say a minimal amount of searching, I'd say 20 minutes of good internet research, you can find who are inspiring and dynamic teachers in a department who will lead you farther up and farther into a subject, which is the kind of the goal of taking the introductory course anyway. Amen. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, we are kind of running out of time. So I want to very briefly talk about study tips. Um, page, was it 154? It's like the best one. Well, it's not even like, it's like a paragraph of study tips, um, which I, I think is alone worth getting the book for. Um, I just want to, one technique that you mentioned is annotating materials. Um, could you explain that? I don't know uh, which of you guys, which maybe both of you have come up, came up with that independently. But when I finally figured that out, it changed my life. Well, let me, let me tell a story. I tell the stories and Jay knows how to educate. So <laughs> that's why, that's why Terry's a better teacher. <laughs> so, so Jay and some of his colleagues created a, a product called PrepU that is used for uh, adaptive learning. Um, and so one time Jay sent me a quiz. He said, take this quiz and tell me what I can improve. So it was a, a 10 question quiz. I took the quiz. I got nine out of 10, right. And I said to him, um, the one thing I would improve is give me feedback faster. So like the Khan Academy gives me feedback right away. Give me feedback faster. And he said, I would, but we have done studies on millions of questions answered. We go back and re-ask the same questions, and we've picked the optimal time between when you answer the question and when we reveal the answer to you for you to retain it in the long term. So what's the message of the story? The message is that um, there is an entire body of knowledge on how to study effectively. And... Even me, I already have been in college for 20 years. Three master's degrees, a PhD. I don't know this stuff, uh, but Jay does. Uh, and the answer is you can, uh, you can use the information that's out there uh, from this field of education research to become a better student. So I don't know all those techniques, but Jay does. So I'll let him talk about annotation. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, one thing I'll say is that a lot of people get the wrong message. They go through high school and they do really well just by virtue of the sheer horsepower in their brain. They can remember a lot of stuff, so they perform well, which is fine in high school. But the damaging part is that they've gotten the message that says what you're doing is right. Just keep doing the same. Turns out when you get to college, that's not the case. There are more effective ways to learn well and to have long-term retention, which is an important goal. So what we try to do, as Terry says, there's an entire world of tens of thousands of researchers figuring out how do we learn and what are the most efficient ways. So obviously we're not going to cover all those. So we, we, 
distill it down to some of the key things that most people are not doing and that they will benefit if they do them. I'll, I'll give you a couple of them, but here's the first one. And, and a lot of professors are doing everything they can to make students not do this. And that is take your own notes, actually write down what's going on during the classroom experience. Students will say, yeah, but I can't keep up. You talk really fast. If you were to post your slides ahead of time, then I can focus on what you're saying. And it's don't, not that don't do it. it. Don't give in to that. Don't do that. No. And and so I don't give in. And they're like, why are you such a meanie? Now we can't yeah. focus on what you're saying. I'm like three minutes behind. And I said, yeah, it turns out that the person who is even three minutes behind and scrawling out their notes as fast as they can actually learns and retains it better because as you are taking the notes, you have to figure out, do I indent this here? Do I put a box around this? Do I put stars in the in the margin for this? You are integrating it with your prior knowledge. You are making a hierarchy of importance. You are Ill illuminating where's the example versus where is the overarching concept. And you didn't even know that. You thought you were just writing it down as fast as you could. But that is an active sort of learning as that, opposed to yeah. listening. Go ahead. And that's not even that's not even touching on the the sort of complex thing that's going on co cognitively while you're using your motor skills with your mm -hmm. you know reason. Everything's your your entire brain must be look like a pinball machine when you're taking notes. They if, there if are some days. Yeah. There are some data where where they look at cognitive effort for different mm -hmm. types of of tasks. And if you're driving on a road at night and there's no traffic, the cognitive yeah. effort is almost zero. That's but, yeah, that's the time you're on a road trip and you're like, oh my God, I don't even remember the last five miles. Exactly. But you were but you were paying attention. And then there's a whole list that you can go up where they look at how much activity is going on in your brain. And you've got things like trying to construct a sentence, trying to think about this, trying to explain something, this or that. Then you get to playing chess if you're a novice and it requires a huge amount of brain power. Then playing chess if you're an expert, huge amount of cognitive effort. And just above that in the amount of brain power is taking notes. <laughs> so of course students don't want to do it, even if it's a sub conscious yeah. desire to, to not do it. It's really hard. Why is it hard? Because learning is hard. My wife, who's an educational researcher, loves to say that learning is hard. But then I'll, I'll flip it around. I'll say hard is learning. If you're doing the thing that's hard, then you are learning it. So exactly what, what you say, Al, that that the cognitive processes that are going on as you're writing it down are really dramatic. So even if they do make them available to you, the notes, you can annotate them. Hey, uh, Professor Zambone is really enthusiastic about this. Wow, he keeps repeating this. I'm going to put a box around this. Wow, he's he's come back to this. He's done a refer back. You're getting all this other, this body language, so that you're not supposed to just transcribe either the pictures and slides he he puts up or the words he said, but it's some combined uh, aspect of what goes on there. I like to say that when you show your notes to your roommate, they should be able to make sense of what went on in class, that it's not just some random stuff, but it's a whole story that you're doing. What I found as a student when I finally learned how to do this, this was several years into, into college, was that I just focused on getting the stuff down. And then every day afterwards, I recopied them. 
And that added yet another layer, if you can find the time to do that. But it added a layer where I thought, all right, well, I'm at least going to use colors and yeah. put them on, on you know, these five by eight cards. I, I found it useful just to, I began to use wider margins and then just to write in stuff in the, in the, in the margins to sort of um, fill it up. And in fact, that was my exam studying technique was to take all the stuff that I had taken notes on and annotated and put it on front and back of a piece of, of blank copy paper, very wide margins, condense everything down as small as I could write, then go all alone into a room and then fill up the rest of the page with that. And I only did it twice that I can recall as undergraduate. You know why? Because it was too hard. It was too much like <laughs> yeah. work. Um, and it was, it was immensely successful, but it's a lot of work because what? Because it's, it's hard. Learning is hard. Well, hard is learning. There, there's a funny thing too that I would help my kids when they were they were really young and they they had to memorize these poems for for their their school. It was a French school, and I would have them starting way early in the process, just getting down you know certain parts, the beginning part, the end part, whatever. And they would get very bad. They'd say, "Yeah, but then when it comes time to the day before, and we're learning." trying to really learn it so that we can recite it, they would say, we've forgotten everything that we learned before. And the research shows that the single best way to have long-term retention of something is to learn it, then let enough time go by that you forget it, and then relearn it. When you relearn it, it's much easier. And it then stays in your brain in a way that's going to be more more effective. This is tough to do if you're a student because this says that 10 hours spent cramming the day before is much less valuable than 10 hours spent as, you know, three hours two weeks ago, three hours a week ago, three hours tonight. But the point is, it can be the same amount of time, but learn, forget, relearn is a hugely valuable way if you want to have better long-term performance on it. And that includes the cumulative final at the end. Uh -huh. Terry, I, I think you were going to say something because your mute button are, are keeps we, going on. Off. Near the end? That... We are getting near the end. <laughs> <laughs> Enough about us. What do you think about us? No, what do you, you, you are uh, so well versed in this. It sounds like we have a lot of, you know, what, what have we missed or what is the right thing we're saying? Well, I, I, I teased you, I teased you in my notes. You gave very good instructions, uh, advice on how to take a language class in college. Um, uh, I would say don't take a language class in college. <laughs> um, uh, because it's a very artificial, I think it's an ultimately, I would take a inflect. Uh, I would take a classical or a uh, so quote unquote dead language, uh, but that's a very different cognitive approach to learning a language. To, mm -hmm. I would, might necessarily take that in college. Um, a lot of Americans take Spanish in um, high school and never really learn it. Uh, my father became very very fluent in Spanish by taking one month of Berlitz and then going at the age of twenty five to the Colombian Altiplano and starting a soap plant as the only English speaker probably for 50 miles. Nice. Um, <laughs> and he had a very, you know, Colombian accent and he had idioms and blah, blah, blah. Um, but he could and he knew a lot, he and, he, very well. and he probably knew a lot of words, he knew a lot of words for soap, but, uh, <laughs> and, and chemical engineering terminology, I'm sure. But I think that <laughs> if I was, if I was arranging, I, I would, I would think about it this way. You know, maybe if you're thinking about an internship to take, um, do uh, a work internship, uh, maybe that first summer 
in the place uh, where you took a you took French or Spanish for four years will go someplace where they only speak French or Spanish. Um, and I would strongly, strongly, if I was had advisees now, I would, you know, break their arms to go to Taiwan. Uh, to there's a language school in Taiwan. I think it's rather inexpensive. There are others like it. Um, you can study for three months in a place where no one speaks English. They only speak uh, Mandarin and Taiwanese. And I would learn languages in places like that, and intensively like that. Um, if you can afford it, go to Middlebury College or one of the Middlebury intensive programs, but go to intensive programs. Um, you'll be amazed at how much you can learn in 10 weeks. You'll be able to immediately go to college and take a literature program. Uh, no joke. Nice. I mean, the very next, the very next. And that's what you really want to be doing. Um, so so if, lang if language in the, in the zoo environment of a, of a college classroom is the worst way, mm -hmm. did you mean it when you said the secret syllabus is the best book for college? And yes, I do. I think it's the, it's the, it's the best one I've encountered yet. Um, because of the way that you guys break it down to the foundations and build it back up, as I said in the mm -hmm. intro, uh, because there is a secret syllabus and people don't know about that. Um, because because there are there are ways that yeah if I was I mean I'm just saying this to, to listeners if you're going to I would um, get Shambliss's book on how college works and the secret syllabus and have them both parents should read how college works students who are going off to college should read the secret syllabus and then you'll know 150% more than you did before actually no you'll know more than that because that that would be 150% multiplied by like you know zero usually or 0. 0.5 because <laughs> um, we it's I mean as I always say on the podcast it's not the things that we don't know it's the things that we know that are, are not true um, I see so Mark Twain didn't say down, that you mean, but you mean things like where we uh, aspects where we say here are actual phrases you could use in office hours as examples is that what you mean by breaking it down or what do you mean by breaking yeah it down? I, I mean but even thinking about uh thinking about the unwritten rules and culture norms where we began mm -hmm. you know that's and also there's i mean there's a wide you guys have done a wide variety of things you've got the study tips but you've also got office hours but you've also got we should finish up by talking about this i mean the chapter that i wish was last was about resilience that's a that's a really good life lesson in talking about resilience, um, and those are all. Those, I mean, what I've just described could all be separate. All be separate books. Um, so right. there's a lot in this book. You figured out all the secrets, right? So we wrote another book called Mean Genes, and it has ten chapters, yeah. and each one of those chapters could be a separate book. In fact, they are for other people. <laughs> right. Through here, is that each chapter could be a, a separate book as well. So. Yeah, if you yeah, if you could teach grit, obviously that would be the best. My uh, again, my daughter who's with me now, when she was in, when she was eight, she struck out and ended her team's season. The man, the team disbanded after this strikeout, and we've never seen the people again. And I said, it's just crying and crying like that is invaluable in a world where you get a trophy for showing up. Mm -hmm. there's nothing better than the pain of destroying your team's season. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and so she learned. She it was it was devastating. If you'd measured her serotonin at that point, it would have been zero, right? Mm -hmm. But that was one of many lessons of learning to become more resilient. And um, uh, you know, it, it, that's the meta process, which is the best, is to try something, fail, and do it again. So we have many many stories of that in uh, in the secret syllabus to try to 
<clears throat> let people know it is a skill that you can develop just like you can do push-ups and get stronger you can learn how to become more resilient mm -hmm. i'll say something too there that i became interested in in resilience because <clears throat> over the years i i had some of these really spectacular failures you know where where i'm failing a class or where i show up to a class as an undergrad and the the teacher is like no you're not on the list and i had to go explore and then i find out i'm not on the list because the previous class was a prerequisite and i had failed that and i just didn't know that i didn't hadn't looked at my grade and so these are things that just make me feel terrible about myself and ev everything but what I found was that when I finally started to tell my students a little bit more about who I was and where I was coming from, as embarrassing as it was, I would tell them, hey, I struggled. Hey, when I applied to graduate school, this, this guy said, this is the worst transcript I have ever seen. That, like, we can sort of laugh at it now, but I don't even like to laugh at it because it's, it's not funny. It's, 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 it's embarrassing. It's, it's, it's awful. And, 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 but I tell this to the students, and I think more than they remember some of the important big lessons I've taught them about biology or human behavior, they think, hey, I can be on academic probation, and if I analyze what I'm doing wrong and I try to change things and I work at it, I can still get into Yale and Harvard for graduate school. And I'm like, really, that's your only take home message. But I thought about it and I thought that message is that, that, you know, everybody falls down, but you have to have a brain that says, I'm going to get up because this doesn't mean it's over. So the, the setbacks not only aren't final, but they turn out to be valuable at making you better later on. Now I am a better teacher because I was the student who did poorly. I can get inside their head and I can see it. So there's just one example where I had the bad experience, I had the bad outcome, but now in the really long term, I'm even better for it. My guests today have been Jay Phelan and Terry Burnham. They are the authors of The Secret Syllabus, a guide to the unwritten rules of college success. Jay, Terry, thanks for being part of Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having us. It was a lot of fun. Oh, really fun. Excellent. You have made your brain very interesting. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone. And I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.